0: The science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency but no matter how sad and angry I am I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe.
1: Welcome back. This is Tem with Shrey. This is our second episode. Uh, here at Temp with Shrey, we are a City Renewables podcast and this time we have Catherine Ward as our guest speaker from Australia. Uh, Catherine here experienced uh, the 2019 2020 wildfires uh, in Australia and and you know she was really stuck in a town where uh, she was with a group of people and she had to be rescued uh, by a navy ship uh, you know Catherine will narrate the story but uh, it, it is pretty uh, powerful it is it, it is an impactful story because it says a lot about what climate situation in our world today looks like uh joining me on this episode is the producer of my show uh brian and uh brian has been working for several years with you know the city renewables in general and he is the person who's like really putting in all efforts to bring this show together so I'm gonna uh, start the show now with uh, Catherine. So Catherine, welcome, how's it going?
2: Hi, good, thank you, so great to be here. Thanks for asking me to come along, Shrey and Brian.
1: Yeah,
3: Catherine from across the globe. And then Shrey, you're in India right now, right? So we're doing a a podcast from from DC to India to (laughs) where in Australia?
2: I'm in Melbourne, in Melbourne, Australia. So bottom of the world.
3: Got it. Uh, So Shrey, you know, you gave me some praise there in that intro, but the truth is you're bringing us together. Uh, You just you, you told me we had to get Catherine on the show. Catherine, just give us a little bit of an intro. You know, what is your relationship with climate change?
2: Yeah, so um, I uh, do a lot of um, work uh, as a volunteer climate activist here in Australia. I, uh, I'm actually a performer and a, a uh, theatre producer most of my life, um, but in my spare time, um, I do a lot of a uh, lot of work with Australian Religious Response to Climate Change Arc, which is a wonderful organisation. I've also been really involved with Australian Youth Climate Coalition, which is another uh, wonderful NGO, really interested in helping young people's voices. Um, be heard on climate change. So uh, for many years, I've been doing um, a bit of climate change work and environmental protection uh, work and advocacy. Um, and then, yeah, as, as you guys said, um, I've had this experience in the last year with the, uh, the devastating 1920 Australian bushfire season, which has really taken that to another level.
3: And so I'm just going to kick us right off because I'm pretty ignorant to this. You know, where I live um, on, the, on the east coast of America, you know, we deal with hurricanes, basically. You know, mm-hmm. my parents live off a of coastline in North Carolina. And, you know, they probably get six to ten tropical storms and hurricanes a year. But wildfires is something more west coast here. You know, is, is, is are, are wildfires, do you get them a lot? It, was this just like a, a random situation? Tell us yeah. a little bit about the landscape.
2: Yeah, so obviously, um, as an Aussie, I live in a very, very dry, dry country. um, And and we call them bushfires here. Um, And bushfires are a regular occurrence in Australia, we have a bushfire season um, every year, which starts at different times of the year, depending on where you are. But um, the east coast, the east side of Australia, which is where I live, uh, is very prone to extreme uh, bushfires. We have a very um, we've had many, many successive um, devastating bushfire uh, events over many years, but this year, uh, this past year, 1920, was absolutely unprecedented. You know, in the past we've had, we tend to come up with names for them. They're, they're so uh, devastating. We've had uh, Black Saturday, Ash Wednesday, uh, many, many other um days that are so bad, so so devastating to the loss of life here in this country that they they have names, special names for them in Australia. So every year we have a bushfire season, um, but it tells you something that the 1920 bushfires were named Black Summer rather than uh, just one day, uh, like a Black Saturday or an Ash Wednesday, that was devastating. We had the uh, the, the, the fire season lasted for so long and was so devastating here during the 2019-2020 the uh, bushfires that it's become known as Black Summer.
1: Wow. So, Catherine, you know, uh, how much of this do you think is related to climate change? Because it feels like you mentioned that bushfires in Australia, you, you have a bushfire season in Australia every year, and this is also a natural phenomenon. But I feel like the 2019-2020 bushfire season or the the fires you had, you know, last year, uh, a lot of that was uh, strongly correlated to climate change. Do you have any sort of like numbers or statistics, uh, you know, saying like the fraction of... uh, you know, yeah, the bushfires really being related to climate change?
2: It's a really good question. It's been a, a huge controversy in Australia because obviously um, with such a loss of uh, of natural habitat and with life and with property, people want to know why. Uh, and the debate in our media about how much could be contributed to climate change has been uh, pretty, pretty vicious, I'd say. But we actually do have some really, um, really compelling statistics coming out now, you know, Uh, A study by the World Weather Attributation Consortium, which is 17 climate scientists from six countries, found that the high temperatures generated in during that black summer, we had hugely hot, hot weather, probably increased the likelihood of these fires occurring by 30%. And that's at the lowest end of the spectrum. They're being very conservative with that estimate. So it's probably even more likely than that. But that um, that wonderful study, which is a very very uh, thorough study, and that was only conducted earlier this year. You know, we're going to have more time to study this, obviously. But that that study found that um, those high heat wave temperatures, which have been generated by climate change in this country, every year getting hotter and hotter, really did uh, up the up the likelihood of those fires happening by at least thirty.
3: And and with that, is is Australia doing anything to combat? Is I mean, I know that you know things like the Paris Climate Agreement are out there, but from studies that we've read. And then also we just had a guest on our last podcast kind of explain it and break it all down. You know, it's not enough. You know, we have to take extreme, mm-hmm. you know, extreme measures. You know, he mentioned something like people need to stop using the air conditioner, you know, like is, is Australia doing anything to be super aggressive in this fight?
2: Yeah. You know, I really wish, wish we were. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're, we remain one of the largest per capita emitters in the world you know something that our, our government frequently uses to kind of avoid taking real action on climate change is that we are we're not uh, I'm not a big emitter com- compared to other countries but per capita we really do um, have a big contribution to make when it comes to uh, to climate change and so in unfortunately um, in this country, the climate action is really politicised, and it's really an identity politics issue. And there, there you know, there have been developments made, and, I, and I'm hopeful that um, after this really horrific bushfire season, there, there may be more action. But unfortunately, we really do lag behind. Um, I think we were rated uh, in the bottom 10 in the world for climate action in a recent study. So we have a lot more to do, and we have a lot more radical action to take.
1: Well. Wow. So, uh, Catherine, uh, moving forward with this conversation, can you narrate your story and, like, you know, what happened, what was like the series of things that took place, and how, like, you know, the situation went down from bad to being yeah. really bad?
2: Yes, yeah, sure. So um, I've been going going to Mallacoota, which is a town on the very, um, the very east, northeast coast of Victoria, which is a state I live in on the bottom of Australia. And, and Mallacoota is a beautiful, beautiful town. It's, um, it's a bit of wild, which is an indigenous t- uh, word for place of many waters, you know. So it's a beautiful, it's got a beautiful inlet and estuary, and it's right on the border with New South Wales. So it's about a seven hour drive from Melbourne. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good hike away. Um, and I've been going down there for, for nearly ten years now, every summer. Um, and uh, once again, during the nineteen twenty uh, bushfire season, um, I went. I went down there with a with a, another big group of young people. Um, we were staying at the foreshore caravan park there, which is uh, a beautiful a beautiful spot right on the estuary there. And Malakuta usually only has a population of about about a thousand, um, but over the summer nice. that can increase up to eight thousand, and that's that's a huge increase. Uh, so it it really does grow, and it's a really popular holiday destination because of how beautiful it is. Uh, and you know, just like every summer, we were aware that there was bushfire warnings. We have a very comprehensive bushfire warning system here in Australia, and we knew that we had to be aware of, of what's going on. But it wasn't it didn't feel unusual. You know, we weren't going to be stopped from going down. So we we headed to Malacuta. Um We were there for uh, for several days. We we left I think on the 27th of December. Probably arrived um, yeah arrived there in the evening on the 27th um, or the 20 sorry the 26th. And then we had a couple of days there before things turned really nasty. Um, and what happened was a fire started to the west of us at Wingen River, and it was caused by a lightning strike, as many fires start in Australia, but um, also obviously really contributed to by the the low humidity and the extreme high temperatures we were experiencing so it all happened very very quickly which i think i, I you know when I've, I've talked to you before shrey i've talked to you about how fast this fire spread um and it's so it started at wingan river and within within about two days a day and a half uh it was on top of us so the fire began and um you know on on the 20 28th of december uh we were issued a, a, a watch and act warning which is um something you get when uh you need to you can't leave yet. it's not it's not life or death yet but it's saying you need to be very aware of your surroundings you need to check check the Vic, victoria emergency app you need to be aware of what's going on because things could get serious so right. the problem with malacoota is that it's um one of the most isolated towns in victoria it's a good Hour and a half drive uh, through very dense bushland on one on a one-lane um, two-lane highway through through bushland to the nearest town. So it's a very um, it's very difficult to get in and out safely if there is any threat of bushfire with with um, with many many thousands of people, uh, caravans, pets, and children in a town. So right. we so um, an hour
1: and a half from like uh, Melbourne or
2: an hour and a half from the nearest other settlement.
1: Okay, all right, so
2: the next the next settlement um, yeah is, is of any size is that far away through through bushland. Mm-hmm. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy escape if you're trapped in that town. Um, there's a road to the north, but once again it's through that same bushland and it's many hours before you hit a town. So um, it's not easy to get out of that, that town should things go wrong, which is what we found very strongly there. So uh, so this was the 20, probably the 27th, I think, of December, when we, we first heard about the fire, but it was to the west of us at this point. Um, and then we hit the 28th, and at the 28th, we uh, attended a community meeting. We have the, spe- um, the emergency services there who conducted a community meeting for us and said, um, it's already too late to leave, um, you have to stay in right. the town, there's no way, there's no way out. And that was very shocking for us because, you know, we've just been told yesterday wait, that a so, fire has so, started. So
1: you can't leave, you need to wait it out in the town. Yes, like meaning yeah. you just cannot grab your cars, head down the no. road and like just rush to the closest town? Or w- w- yeah. what does that mean? Because that itself I is mean, a horrifying statement.
2: It is. It is a very horrifying statement. It's It's. Um. Australia's bushfire warning system has really progressed because we have lost so many lives. And Uh, So we have, we have warnings, which, which are warnings that say it is too late to leave or, or uh, leave now to live pretty much, which is a system that says, if you leave now and go to another town, you'll, you'll be safe. Um, But, or it's too late to leave because being on the road is far more dangerous than sheltering in place. So the warning we had was um, it is too late to leave. Obviously no one can stop you from leaving, uh, but. It is too late to leave, leaving uh, would most likely result in your death or injury or extreme loss of property and life. Uh, You need to stay in the town and wait it out and shelter here. And that's obviously a very shocking thing to hear um, from emergency services. They say, you know, you have to stay here. You can't leave. Uh, There's a wildfire coming. It will hit you within the next day. Did anyone venture out? Some did. uh, Some went north. we couldn't, we were a very large group with tents, and we had some small children with us. Uh, there is a road north, but it's equally as dangerous um, in a bushfire when a fire could start at any time. So we there, there were some tourists who went north, um, but very quickly it, they, people realized that there was 4,000 people trapped in this town with no way out, which is um, a terrifying reality to be faced with, really.
3: So like, paint the scene, is it like, are you seeing the fires all around you? Are you just seeing smoke? Like, did you venture out, or did you pretty much just kind of shelter in, you know, one specific place? Yeah. Um, how? Like, I want to. I want to kind of picture the scene.
2: At this point, uh, it's very surreal because you can't really tell that anything's wrong. There's a lot of there's a lot of smoke, but there's no real. Um, you can't see flames. There's no real panic. Um, so it's quite surreal being told that your life may be threatened and property uh, of the town may be threatened and when there's no, no real threat to you right then. Um, but we quickly realized just how bad it was going to get. So we, um, we slept overnight. Uh, we all left our tents. We weren't uh, able to sleep in, in the tents anymore that we had because of the fear of ember attacks, which is when the embers... Um, yeah go ahead of the fire and create small spot fires so we all uh, slept in the local church on the floor in the local church that night um, and we we had an app we have an emergency app a very good app in, in Victoria telling us when the fire is likely to hit uh, and, and every I would December
1: up every, 28th
2: so this is this is uh, 29th I believe this okay. is when the, the next day so um, we had this app that was telling us the likely time the fire would hit us and I would wake up every two, two hours to check that app um, and it would say the fire will hit you at, at 5 a.m. at 6 a.m. you know it would adjust depending on the latest information and I remember very clearly waking up at about uh, probably about 5:30 in the morning uh, and the smell had changed the the smell was no longer that wood fire smoke smell you might get at a campfire it was this thick Um, sort of nauseous smell of smoke that had gone through the whole building and I thought I would be sick actually I've never smelled anything like it it was so thick because so much uh, so much material had burnt as this fire came towards us that had created its own weather system this fire Uh, and it was just it was enormous and that's what I smelt when I woke up that morning and I looked out the window and it um, it was blood red. The sky was absolutely blood red. It's very difficult to describe um, if you haven't seen it, but it was like nighttime. And this was at about 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. So, blood red sky, uh, raining, raining leaves, uh, small animals, birds were falling out of the sky because they couldn't breathe. Jeez. Um, you know, I, watched, I watched a small bird as it was flying past our, the church there, just, just die, just fall out of the sky. And we had black leaves raining down and embers flying through the sky. So it's, it's hellish, really. It's, it's being in the middle of a, a monstrous firestorm. Um, so we, we stayed in that church. We, um, we soaked wet tea towels and wrapped them around our face. Unfortunately, many of my friends had breathing difficulties. Uh, we had asthmatics. Uh, and they really struggled. I really feared for, for their lives, um, particularly because trying to breathe uh, in that level of smoke is is very difficult. And many of my friends had real really severe health problems while we while we were there. So that was the the morning the fire hit. Um, and at about eight a.m. we were evacuated to the beach, which is the uh, the foreshore kind of um, the foreshore jetty area of the caravan park because um, we were in a building that that they, they really did fear might might go up. So all of us were evacuated to the, to the water and we spent many hours sitting by the water and that's when we first saw flames um, very close to the town there.
3: 4,000 people got...
2: 4,000 people, pushed... yeah. Wow. So we had... Uh, not, not all of those people were evacuated to the water. Some were evacuated to... Um, a very large cinema nearby, which had a, um, a structure that was less less likely to go up in flames. Um, and that was sort of post-apocalyptic, you know, people sleeping on a concrete floor, babies, people had their pets with them. You know, I was sitting by the water and I, um, a lady had brought her little cot for her kind of one-year-old and her little baby was sort of sitting in this cot, playing with toys in the middle of this kind of red, hellish landscape. People had their dogs in their arms. It was... It was a crazy thing to see.
3: And at this point, are you fearing your life? Like I know you said before, you're kind of in the center of a town. You're not necessarily seeing the threat. Are you now fearing for death?
2: I think that um, leaving, leaving the building and having to go out, you know, with tea towels wrapped around my face, holding the hands of my friends, that was definitely the scariest moment. Um, I think that I didn't fear for my life so much as I feared for, the, the particularly vulnerable people around me, the people who had breeding difficulties. Um, like I said, there were babies and elderly people down at the waterfront, and there was, there was talk that we may have to get into the lake, into the estuary, and swim to a nearby island, uh, and that never eventuated, thank goodness, but I was quite aware that if we had to do that, there were people, little children, who wouldn't be able to swim. There were people with pets uh, and elderly people, people who weren't well, and I was quite concerned that... Um, the circumstances of having to escape the fire could actually be the thing that led to people losing their life
3: so how did the, the fire just kind of stopped in its tracks somewhere did firefighters get to it how does that kind of conclude
2: yeah so the um the country fire authority the cfa is a wonderful volunteer fire service um, that operates all throughout uh, australia and they they had a huge presence at Malacoota. Um, and they were amazing. They were heroes. You know, they they just worked enormous, enormous shifts, putting out spot fires, uh, creating fire breaks, hosing down buildings, and two things really prevented the whole town from going up. We had a we had a wind change uh, that morning which was incredibly important in helping the fire to miss the the main township. The fire did destroy a huge number of homes around the town. But that wind change and the efforts of the CFA, um, putting out spot fires, creating breaks, hosing down, fighting fires, was the thing that really saved the main town.
1: What about the church?
2: The church was, was fine. Thankfully, the church is quite... Um, quite close to the main town uh we did have spot fires as close as probably about 50 to 60 meters away um you know i went the next day and saw huge burning logs and trees that were still burning days and weeks later because of how big the the spot fires had been but um the church was fine and the main street and the caravan park are are fine they did however lose um, more than 100 homes all around the outskirts of the town
1: All right. So, uh, Catherine, let me ask you a question real quick. The fire comes, there is a change in wind patterns. And so the fire changes its direction and moves somewhere else and does not really touch the town the way, you know, it was projected, but, uh, does this inherently mean that you guys are okay and like, you can just hit the road and run away from the town or is it still not safe to move anywhere else?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, um, we we really were uh, deeply affected by the aftermath of the fire. So the fire had moved moved uh, on, had missed the main part of the town, despite destroying a lot of the surrounding area. But unfortunately, we were now trapped in, in one of the most isolated towns in Victoria with no way out, really. Um, the road to the, to the west was completely um fire broken by fire. There was many, many trees down. It took it took weeks and weeks for that road to open. And we couldn't go north either. The fire had started to move north. So we were trapped in this town uh, at this point. And this was 4,000 people, um, many of whom were experiencing severe health issues, really. Um, the town had run out of Ventolin. You know, we had no, um, no relief for asthmatics and people who had never even experienced breathing difficulties before, but who were now being impacted. So uh, it was a health emergency, really. Um, we had no running water for several days. Um, we had uh, limited food supplies, limited medical supplies, no electricity for many, many days um, that we were there. So we couldn't leave. Um, and that was a situation that the Australian government decided to step in and evacuate us.
3: One thing that kind of makes me sad, just listening to all this, and we haven't really touched on it yet, and you did some, but just the um, the sheer loss of uh, of of life for for all types of animals. That's something um, sitting from a far away. You know, I'm I'm the guy that's always watching, you know, different documentaries on Animal Planet or Planet Earth or whatever. It's like that's the closest I'm going to get to Australia for quite some time, to be honest. So, what was that scene like? Like when you were walking around and you saw things burning, did you also see Like dying animals and then speak to, you know, the loss of, you know, did you lose like whole species, you know, in parts of towns and just kind of give us like a little short synopsis of of that side of it.
2: Well, the estimate is that Australia has lost three billion animals as a result of these 1920 fires, and that's that's every kind of animal. That's our beautiful mammals, like our koalas and our kangaroos. That's little reptiles. That's insect species, and we don't know the full extent yet um, because it's been so soon, and you know. So we will know more and more but the estimate is three billion animals either displaced or dead from these fires. And that's huge, that's enormous. Um, you know, one of the buildings that um, I spent a lot of time in, in Malacuta, there's a beautiful uh, mud brick building there, um, that was turned entirely into a koala hospital. So they put up branches, they put up um, eucalyptus leaves and they just brought in koala and after koala after koala who had been uh, dehydrated, starving, um, or, or burnt by the fires and nursed them back to health. But that's only a small proportion of the animals they managed to find and save. So it really is heartbreaking, the loss of wildlife, the loss um, of biodiversity, is one of the worst parts of these fires.
1: Yeah. And and like, you know, Catherine, you mentioned that there was no electricity. so. Did you have any sort of like telecommunications or any way to reach out to your family members? Maybe in Melbourne Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, you were okay. You know, was there any sort of communication other kids within your camp had with their family members? Mm -hmm. What, What was the entire scenario with that?
2: yeah i mean let me tell you in a disaster of that scale with no electricity mobile phone battery becomes a commodity that is just so sought after you know um having having a battery that's dying and you can't message your family is hugely stressful uh we were very lucky we started to do um there was one building in the town that had guaranteed electricity and that was the medical center because it had a generator and so every uh, each day we would make several trips to the medical center and bring um uh, to just to charge phones. So we would take all our friends' phones, charge them up to as much as we could in this sort of the hour that we were there, bring them back and then do another trip to charge people's phones. So having battery on our phones was a hugely um, a stressful experience, trying to limit, you know, have enough battery um, to check the Vic Emergency app, have enough battery to update our friends and family because there were many, many friends and family obviously so stressed about this. So that was a very... Um, and yeah, something, an experience I didn't imagine having is, is watching that mobile phone battery go down and knowing that when it when it hits zero, you, you can't reassure your friends and family anymore.
3: And what concerns me is, is we don't really know how to move forward in this because the, the issue being is that there's not a quick fix. So, you know, what I'm concerned with is, do we just start like avoiding parts of areas that we know that there's going to be, you know, higher risk mm. of natural disaster like do you like you know an issue that we're dealing with here is just like our coastlines continue to rise so you know we're losing houses on on, on parts of our coastline and it's not it's from everything that you know that mm. i understand it's not going to slow down and it could progressively get much faster so you know i i don't i just don't see you know this changing and i think there's going to be more and more of these type of stories mm. so what do like How do you move forward in this? You know, do you just like, do you find a new vacation spot? Like, do you like, what are we going to do um, in these next few years as we potentially see this get worse?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And the truth is um, that in Australia, we can't, we can't avoid these bushfires. Um, You know, a third of of Victoria burnt during these bushfires. Uh, You can't avoid a third of your state. You can't avoid. your whole country, uh, you can't you can't keep out of your forests all summer. We had rainforests burning during the 1920 bushfires, places that had never burnt before, and so it's not possible for you, uh, and we wouldn't want to, to stay out of these areas. Um, so the truth is, I will go back to Malacoota, um and many many people will keep going back because we love the town, we love uh, we love our state, we love our natural resources. So if that can't change, and we're at risk of losing what connects us to our country, then something else has to change. Uh, And that's why I firmly believe that, um, you know, proper funding for emergency services, but also large scale action on climate change is the only way.
1: And what do you mean by large scale action on climate change? Is is it international agreements? Is it more like renewable energy in Australia? I I know there is a very strong coal lobby in Australia. So is it renewable energy in Australia? Is it something that has to do with like, you know, consumption or like per capita emissions of people? What what do you really mean by uh, large scale climate action?
2: Yeah, so it, I think it's it's got to be a multi-strand approach from my point of view. You know, it's very important, obviously, for us to change our individual lifestyles and to reduce our consumption, uh, and so that should be encouraged. But I also just firmly believe that um, it's not. Um, it has to go hand in hand with with political action, with with government um, with government help and government. Um, promotion of renewable energy with a larger uptake of renewable energy with funding for advancements in renewable energy uh, and and with with the proper um, support for international agreements. You know, Australia has signed up to the Paris Agreement, but um, we very famously have many ways of getting around, uh, our, getting around our emissions targets and um, using carryover credits for the Kyoto Protocol, for example, which is very controversial in this country. There's many ways that we seem to be avoiding taking large-scale action to reduce our emissions as we have agreed to in our international agreements. So following those international agreements, signing up, And then following through on our international obligations to our world when it comes to climate change as well as as you know the technology is there for renewable energy now it's getting better and better every year um so why aren't we taking it up why aren't we endorsing it as governments and as individuals is what i say
3: i would have to agree and the issue the issue is is that it's a political it's a political debate in the entire world you know it's Mm -hmm. like every single country everyone that i that we talk to you know, talks about their experience with this. and unfortunately, it, it, you know in America, it falls down to to lobbyists and you know subsidies for oil companies and those, those relationships that have been soiled for years and years and years. So it's, that's what makes it so difficult here. I mean, we're just kind of waiting on this next election and just hoping for the best so that we can move forward with uh, plans set under the Obama administration. Um, because honestly, we've just really reversed—you know—almost everything. Our, our—you know—environmental agencies are a joke at this point, um, mm-hmm. propped up by like former CEOs of oil companies, and it's just—it's a nightmare. So I don't want you to feel alone. Uh, we are definitely <laughs> struggling through it as well. Um, and I don't want to seem too doom and gloom, but I just—you know—doing temp check with Shrey and some other you know we've now been diving into our local politics and just like how little everybody actually knows i just can't feel good about this and that's actually what drives this podcast and drives this initiative is just being so scared at this point like you know i get off a podcast and i'm just like i just catherine i feel for you like i couldn't imagine being in that scenario like your hand you sounds like you handled it really well um, and I asked the question about being fearful, because I could just imagine I have a uh, a two year old and another one on the way. and I, it's just it just completely changed my perspective on life, just having, you know, family now. And I just couldn't imagine, you know, I couldn't imagine if I was away from them for a week or something and couldn't come home to them or didn't know if I ever would, or just all the different types of situations that, People were in. Uh, It just sounds so compelling. And and we want to thank you um, for coming on our show. Uh, We want to give you a chance um, if you'd like to plug your social medias or maybe uh, an initiative that people can donate to or just kind of anything you want people to know. We want to give you kind of the platform um, while we close this podcast out.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, real privilege and I would just say you know this this podcast I firmly believe that um that action creates hope and and hope creates action and and actions like this big and small uh, are what creates change so it's been a real pleasure but uh, I would I would love to plug you know um organizations like arc like australian religious response to climate change and also green faith international and encourage people to um yeah to do their research to find out ways they can be use their gifts in their community you know and, and if you'd like to find me on social media you could find me uh, on my instagram at katherine abigail underscore ward w-a-r-d so thank you guys for allowing me to come on and speak my piece
3: you got a
1: follower and me um a Shrey. why don't you go ahead and close this show out Thank you, guys, for listening to our second episode of Time Check with Trey. Uh, we'll be coming uh, soon with more uh, episodes. But the bottom line here really was that climate change is not something futuristic or climate change is not something that's that's, you know, that is set to impact our world 10, 20 or 30 years from now. Climate change is happening right now. The Australian bush that Catherine elaborated you know it burned around 50 million acres in australia 16 million acres in southeastern part of the country and nearly 6000 homes were destroyed uh, based on the future episodes that we'll be having and the past episode we, that we already have we know that this is something that is in every part of the world uh, one of the other episodes that we'll have uh, is from someone in a town called Paradise in California, which witnessed the same event. It witnessed a wildfire. One of the other episodes we might have is from someone who is a resident of a town in Kenya uh, and who also lives in Somalia, who has had to uh, endure uh, droughts in Somalia because of climate change. So the bottom line is it is important for us to act now and it is important for us to realize that this is not something futuristic or this is not something we can entrust upon our future selves, but it is something that we need to entrust upon our present selves. So with those lines, uh, I'll close this show. And for everyone who listened to this program, just keep an eye out for the next episode and, will you see, and, and we'll all see you right there pretty soon. Thank you. Search us on every platform, and
3: on Spotify and iTunes at City Renewables. We're out.